You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, Scott. Hi, Scott. Hi, Robert or Bob. <laughs> Which one should I call you? Uh, you know, it's up to you. If you want to remind me of one of my siblings, you can call me Robert. Uh, and if you want to remind me of any other living person, you can call me Bob. Okay, I'll call you Bob today. Did you see my tweet this morning about how excited see, oh, I was yeah, to chat with you today? Oh, yeah, how excited you are. Yeah, yeah. Yes. You know, you, you must have a big Twitter following because that had a number of likes. If I tweeted something random like that, I would get like zero <laughs> likes. I Especially, love my followers. They're awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've been slowly building up a no, good you're, group. You're, I mean, we should talk about your Twitter feed because it's very distinctive. But we should first tell people who you are and who I am. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show. Available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. It's also on the Meaning of Life TV website and YouTube channel. And you are Scott Barry Kaufman, psychologist, uh, proprietor of The Psychology Podcast. And there's only one psychology podcast, and that would be this one. Congratulations on getting to that name first, by the way. Thank you. I was... I feel like I was like an early adopter with the whole podcast thing. I mean, how long, I how, long have six, you, how long have you been doing it? Six years, and you know, in dog in dog life, that's that's a that's lifetime. Almost, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's almost a whole dog. Congratulations. Yeah, um, thank you. And you're, you're uh, I mean, as people, I guess I already said you're a psychologist. They might infer that from the title of the podcast. Anyway, um, you've taught a number of places, most recently Columbia, and you've written some books. One is called. Ungifted, which is about intelligence, an area that you've studied extensively, and you co-authored a book called Wired to Create, which people who want to create should read. But you've got a brand new book, and that's yes, what I'll we're hold talking about. It's and so uh, why? We'll make it. We will oh. make it inescapable. Let's both hold it up. Fi- the oh, oh! You don't have the final version. You have the proofs. Is that those are the page proofs? Those is, are the, uh, the, the galley. The galley. The jacket looks remarkably like the one that you're holding up. Um, so it, the texture is different though. This is the oh. final version. Oh, I see. Um, You're, you've got some kind of 3D thing going at your end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's actually 4D. 4D. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah, you can uh, smell the book. <laughs> they added the dimension of time to the jacket. That's amazing. Oh. <laughs> um, the uh, so it's called Transcend: The New Science of Self Actualization. Um, yes, I've been looking for forward to this conversation ever since our last one where we did a lot of teasers, you know, and yep. things. That was a good – I just listened to that, and it was good. It Which was shouldn't legendary. surprise me because you were involved in it. <laughs> yeah, no, talking to you and that, you know, for me was like a highlight of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet you say that to all the podcasters. I don't actually. If you listen, I, I don't say that often. <laughs> okay. I'll that was a great you. chat. That was a really good chat. Yeah, I, I liked was, your questions. That was fine. Of course, for me, it was uh, of um, it was self indulgent because we talked about me. I took your self actualization test, and so I we analyzed, talked about I my score you. and my <laughs> so on. We'll try to avoid uh, that many Bob references this time, and focus on the book. Congratulations! Um, now we're t- actually taping this uh, a few weeks before it comes out. Yeah, and and we will not run it until it comes out. Uh, we want people to be able to buy it. And, you know, the world may have changed by then. Um, it, it's, it's, it's strange living in the time of the coronavirus because you really don't know. I mean, like right now, it's something people are taking very seriously 
but it's not yet like an American tragedy or anything, you know. It, it's more like fear of what might come. And I don't know, in three weeks, maybe we'll realize the worst is over and maybe we'll realize that things have gotten much worse. I don't know. You know, I saw a video, a YouTube video, just I think yesterday, of Italians who are quarantined sending messages to themselves from just 10 days ago. Their I saw themselves. a little of that. So they were saying, they were saying, so somebody said, what would you say to the you of 10 days ago, right? Correct, correct, yeah. correct. Yeah, you're right. They didn't literally send the message back to the former selves, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it is, uh, it is interesting. It was very interesting and elucidating for me to watch that. And I, and I almost wondered if we should do that exercise of what would we tell ourselves 10 days from now to <laughs> the, the inverse of that. Although I don't know what that wow. would really mean. Yeah. That's tough. What would you say? Well, if it turns, if it does turn out that we're really in bad shape 10 days from now, or even what, by the time this podcast comes out, um, you know, all joking aside, like I, I just want to say to that, that version of myself and, and the world that, you know, uh, that we, we care, like I care, like I care about that person 10 days from now, um, very, very much. And I'm going to try to do as much as I can do right now. Uh, to help the people around me and uh, take care of myself so that that damage is minimized. But, you know, there is this feeling of, of doom going around and, you know, you turn on the, the news and you'll be depressed within five minutes because every breaking news is like, oh, you, I'm like, like you can't get any worse. You know, you think, you think it's worse. And then they're like, oh, we have new breaking news. You thought the other breaking news was bad, you know? Oh, it could get a lot worse. And then there's the financial news. I mean, uh, and that's a completely unpredictable thing. Where we'll be economically three weeks from now. Um, but what I want to, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go on. But that's just kind of compounding the sense of, uh, apocalypse. You know, there's this great Viktor Frankl quote, which I don't, don't want to say the precise words, but you know, like you can take any of our freedoms away, but our ability to kind of choose in the moment and find and choose our own way. And I think that I just am living by those principles at this moment because it is true. No matter what it says in that news, it can't change. Like they can't, they can't force me. They can't force how I react to it and they can't prevent me from continuing to spread positivity and transcendence. Like, like I can continue spreading that up until the day I die, right? Like there's nothing telling me that I can't do that no matter how dire the circumstances. So I just keep trying to think about that fact. Okay. Well, maybe we should start that process now by talking about your book, Transcend. Great. Um, Let's do it. So I guess we should assume that most people either either didn't listen to our previous podcast or don't clearly recall it. So we should do a certain amount of kind of uh, Abraham Maslow 101 here. I mean, the, the the subtitle of the book is The New Science of Self-Actualization. Self-actualization is a term famously associated with this famous psychologist, Maslow. Uh, and I mean, let me just say the book has, it has some interesting dimensions. It is... On the one hand, you know, very, very well-told story of Abraham Maslow, along with some kind of debunking of misconceptions about Maslow, including some that have been perpetuated by our Psychology 101 textbooks. I actually went and found the one I used freshman year. The cover's been torn off of it. It was called 
uh, psychology, the science of mind, and sure enough, here's the diagram of uh, the in pyramid form. This is from the book. Um, I, I think you, you mentioned the phrase in your book, The Third Force, right? And this is a book co- that was called The Third Force. Yes. So I have that book, and I did research on that. Turns out Maslow never drew the pyramid. Right. That was the author of that book who right. drew that. Uh, and I think that's really important to recognize. That was sort of their mm-hmm. depiction of it. But was that was that a book that you read when you're for your freshman year? Well, the book, no, not the third force. Oh. This diagram was taken from the book, the third force. That's what oh, the credit says. This is an introductory textbook that, oh. if the jacket were still with us, would say psychology, the science of mind by George Miller, well-known psychologist and uh, oh, wow. a, a co-author named Buckholtz. What so, year was that? Well, was I, this was I, I. This would have been like seventy fall of nineteen seventy five or spring of seventy six that I was taking the course. The second edition of the textbook. It's very interesting that that Miller decided to use that depiction there. That's not even the iconic pyramid. It, he flattened that at the top, right? He flattened. He, he used the one that's flattened at the top. There, it is flat at the top. I mean, so if that's you mean very visually. interesting. So, and and and, and but this is a good. A good chance to tell people what the pre-debunked conception of Maslow is. I mean, this is the way it appeared in text textbooks. Is first of all, it's typically called like the hierarchy of needs or something. And at the bottom, it says basic needs, safety and security, and underneath those are like you know, air, water, food, shelter, sleep, sex, basic needs. And then you get higher on the thing, and you get things that aren't strictly required for survival. But many of them are nice to have, love and belongingness, self-esteem. Uh, and those are distinct levels, you know, and you go up and then in the, th- and then you get up to what are called, well, I guess, no, I guess those are called growth needs too. We'll get into that because you make a comparable distinction. But, uh, and there's a whole list of things, you know, uh, meaningfulness, self-sufficiency, uh, Beauty, goodness, truth at the top. Anyway, the, the idea is that you start with the things you have to have. You got to have those. You build up, uh, you know, and amass, if that's the word, these, these, uh, things that are, you know, strictly speaking, optional, but nice to have. And you're moving towards self-actualization, this thing that's a really great thing to have. And then that's the end of the story. According to this pyramid, there's nothing above self-actualization and and again there's this idea that it's almost a series of steps you're going through that's the uh, before you correct that do you want to say anything else about what the the received view in the psych 101 textbooks said and then you can proceed to revise it as you see uh fit or wait let me let me finish what i was going to say so your book interesting story of maslow and 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 by way of correcting misconceptions about him, you you bring uh, you know you tell us interesting stories about his actual life, underappreciated things he wrote that nobody pays attention to that are important to you, and then on top of that, you do your whole analysis, um, and you build a kind of edifice that is you know roughly consistent with his, but has your distinctive signature as well as a lot of uh, kind of uh, data that you're that you're adding to the picture. To get us to transcendence. So, with that as yeah, preamble. that's yeah, that's that's fair. You know, most people who take introductory psychology courses or introductory management courses will come across a textbook that will include this iconic 
pyramid. And the way it's depicted is that, and this is the way the story goes, because it's not actually Ma- what Maslow actually said, but the way the story goes is that Maslow argued that we have an increasing set of needs. Uh, we have a, we have a hierarchy of needs, I should say, where we need to fulfill one level before we can get to the next level, as though life were some sort of video game. And once you attain one of the levels, like connection, then some voice from above is like, congrats, you've unlocked steam, you know, and then you don't do do And then you hear Mario Brothers music in the background. Well, that's um, not actually how Maslow thought of it. And not, and like I said, he didn't never even drew a triangle or a, a, a pyramid. Uh, he did have a hierarchy of needs, which was a hierarchy of prepotency, you know, arguing that some needs are more uh, important for us in terms of fulfillment. You know, you know, like so. There's deprivation needs, and he he did make the distinction between deprivation needs and growth mm-hmm. needs. And when the when the deprivation needs are severely deprived, then it really can take over the whole person. You know, mm-hmm. we it, we're hungry. We all know what that feeling is like to go in that state of of pure deprivation, where you know, as Maslow said, everything looks like food to you. <laughs> you know, like like you know, when 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 you when the the hungry the hungry person, you know, it it, it alters your whole way of looking at the world. Actually, I quote you, and did you did you notice that I, I quoted you in my book in that right. section because you made a great point about that about how evolution enslaves us, and I thought that was a great a great point in your thank, own book. Thank you for that for that. Yeah, yeah, Plug. and it does. I mean, I'm on the same page with you about that. Mm-hmm. It really. Evolution has in it. We we can build. I agree with people like Douglas Kenrick and other evolutionary psychologists who argue that we we can build Maslow's hierarchy on an evolutionary foundation. I think that is fair. But my my pyramid is not based on a purely evolutionary perspective. It's on mm-hmm. a human perspective. It's on the from the perspective of the whole organism that is actually living their lives day to day, not the genes that are trying to replicate themselves. And I think they're different perspectives. Right. I, I mean, you know, the, the uh, they're, I wouldn't say they're necessarily incompatible. I mean, genes, quote, trying to replicate themselves, even though they probably don't do it consciously, you know, gives rise to a very complex organism with all these needs and, and, and things and, and potentials. Um, let me ask you a question. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the chapter of that textbook that that pyramid was in was about, um, humanistic psychology. And I, I still remember reading about Carl Rogers as one of the human, humanistic psychologists in this textbook. Maslow was another one. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what that signified at the time. And a question I, well, go ahead and just tell us what is humanistic psychology? When I discovered this field, I was preparing a lecture at University of Pennsylvania for my introduction to positive psychology class. I was going to, my, my next yeah. question was going to be, by the way, was humanistic psychology a forerunner of positive psychology? Oh, for sure. Okay. For sure. In fact, Abraham Maslow called it positive psychology. Did and he? oh, absolutely. He had a whole appendix in the first edition of his book Toward a Psychology of Being which was like called Toward a Positive Psychology. So he definitely tried to outline that field. And he also he alternatively called it a he called it being psychology. I think he actually preferred the term being psychology to positive psychology. He also sometimes referred to it as 
ortho psychology, but that's not as sexy as any of the other alternatives. No, I'm, I'm glad that one didn't uh, catch on. Yeah, me, yeah, me too. But when I was doing research for my lecture on the history of positive psychology and I discovered some of the writings, one led to another, led to another. I unearthed all these people. It wasn't just Carl Rogers and Abraham Maslow. It was Eric Fromm, Karen Hornay, who I, I consider a humanistic psychoanalyst, you know. Um, we, you know, we had Charlotte Bueller, we have, uh, I, I would put Alfred Adler in there as, as part of, although he was one of the earlier, earlier ones, him and, and Hornay in the, in the thirties. But all of them, there's a common theme that ran through what they talked about, the kind of themes that they focused on. And there were very different themes than what we focus on today in psychology. So there are a lot of buzzwords in psychology, a lot of things that people really get excited by. And, uh, you know, happiness is one. People love happy, the psychology of happiness. They get very excited over that. Achievement. People love the psychology of achievement. Uh, mm-hmm. The word, gr- the word greatness. People love the word greatness. Uh, peak performance. People love peak performance. Now these words were not words that existed in the humanistic psychology literature. Their lexicon I resonated with much more than the lexicon of modern day psychology. They were talking about things such as responsibility, freedom, creativity, love, spirituality, love, um, humanitarianism, mm-hmm. growth. I should say growth yeah. and health. Now, th- these these words that were part of their lexicon, f- for some reason, I don't know what it is about my own being, but it really resonated with with the core of my being in a way that modern psychology hadn't, I- including positive psychology. Now, I say that with all due respect for the field of positive psychology, and as you know, I worked with the founder of the field, Martin Seligman, for mm-hmm. quite some years. So, I this is not, you know, I think we can still have healthy criticism of fields and still have great appreciation and respect for the fields, but but still modern day positive psychologists were still not quite using the same language as the humanistic psychologists. So the humanistic psychologists, if if we really did sum it up as Charlotte Bueller did in her, in her big address in, I think in the fifties on humanistic psychology, she, she said, we're interested in understanding the whole person. Mm-hmm. And what they meant by that is they're interested in the integrated human being, the, the human being that is fully human in the sense that all parts themselves are working as a whole unit not as a fragmented self. And, and I, and I think it, it really did resonate with me because I, you know, I was interested in evolutionary psychology for many years and still am quite interested in that field and, and, and do have respect for evolutionary psychologists, but they focus so much on the human, on the modularity of mind. They focus so much on, well, we have this module and this module. And some evolutionary psychologists have, have attempted to f- try to figure out, well, how do we make a choice or a decision? And you, and you do a wonderful job uh, going through that in your book on why Buddhism is true in, in terms of what some of the evolutionary psychologists have attempted to do. But I think the way a humanistic psychologist have, have tackled the issue is, is ultimately more satisfying for me in, okay. in, in trying to understand that. And, and, and how do they, how do they try to tackle it? Well, they do it in in a way uh, where they emphasize things like again responsibility and mm-hmm. and free and, and the connection between freedom and responsibility. This was, I mean, this is these are themes of existential philosophers. And, yeah, I was going to so, say it sounds more yeah. like philosophy than mm-hmm. psychology. Well, the humanistic psychologists owed a huge debt to the existential philosophers. There's mm-hmm. no doubt about that, and they were very open about that. Carl Rogers. 
often uh, he would quote uh, Kierkegaard. I think that's mm-hmm. how you pronounce his last name, Soren. Uh, roughly, that's how you pronounce his last name. But you know, and 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 and, and you know, Kierkegaard wrote quite a bit about possibility. He sometimes he said we can drown in possibility. I, I you know. Uh, so they really, they really drew a lot on those writings, but they wanted to understand the psychology behind it. They wanted to understand how do humans, uh, how, or how can we as humans live a life where we take full responsibility for our existence? You know, as we're here on this planet in this short amount of time and we're occupying this space as we mm-hmm. go around and we do, we make consequences on the world, how can we, really plumb the depth of our being and our whole self and, and, and accept and take, you know, accept and take responsibility for not just the good bits of ourselves, but the naughty bits of ourselves, not disavowing the, the, the naughtiness or, 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 or sweeping it under the rug. I mean, I, I think Maslow, so Maslow called himself a realistic optimist and that's what I would call myself. If, if I may, that's how I would describe myself as well. I don't like cynics. I don't like, pessimists i like realistic optimists uh that that's just that resonates more with me and you know we can we don't have to ignore the 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 worst of humanity but i think it's also important to acknowledge there is also great uh great potentialities within us as well that can 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 be actualized right and that kind of relates to one of the not precise parallels i see between humanistic psychology and positive psychology but a a rough kind of parallel, which is that, you know, Marty Seligman, whom we both know, and you, as you said, you worked with for a long time, and he's, if there's a single founder of modern positive psychology, it would be him. Um, yeah. You know, the way he's often put it is that he, he just felt psychology was so uh, focused on just fixing problems, curing pathologies, making people less bad, and didn't didn't set its sights any higher than that. In, in terms of bringing bringing out uh, g- getting them well, beyond merely functional and merely healthy, and and similarly, you know, with with self actualization, there is kind of the idea that okay, you have these basic uh, needs, these things that if you don't have them, you are deficient, and it's one thing to cure your deficiencies and get you the fundamental things you need. Um, and then you'll be a functioning organism if you have enough food to eat and so on. And if you, ha- you know, but we can do better. You know, there, there is, That's there exactly is love right. and there is, uh, and, and so on. So there is that kind of, it's not a precise parallel, but it, it's, it's, there's a relationship, right? Well, here's what some modern day humanistic psychologists, and there's not that many of them. <laughs> so, um, I'm, in a lot of ways, I'm trying to kind of, bring back a you know i consider myself a humanistic psychologist i don't call myself a positive psychologist even though i draw a lot on their work but i think some criticism from modern day positive humanistic psychologists of the field of positive psychology is rightly so i think they argue that positive psychologists don't really uh, really take up the task of the fundamental paradoxes of human existence you know the, mm. it's possible to actually do too much of a pendulum swing, right? So the field has focused too much on what's wrong with humans, but you can go too much in the other direction and care and just say, well, I don't actually care about human suffering. I just care about what brings us happiness and, and sort of not into and not integrate that into the whole, the whole human, the whole human, you know, the, the, the humanistic psychologists were so interested in those, those fundamental paradoxes of human existence, if, uh, which, uh, uh 
Irvin Yalom calls the givens of existence, and he lists a, a number of them. And those are the things that I think are fascinating to see how humans reconcile so, those paradoxes. So what, what's an example of a given, a specific example of a given of, of existence? Well, I I could read all four. Um, well, you don't have to. We can, uh, but I, I guess, um, I, well, I so, guess what, well, I have the page up. I have the page okay. up now. I, I'll, I'll give you one. So here we have freedom. Freedom it, it often brings us, you know, just the inherent fact that we have freedom in life gives us, it sets up a human paradox, which is the inherent conflict between the seeming randomness of the universe and the heavy burden of responsibility that comes with the freedom to choose one's own destiny. That mm-hmm. is a heavy, heavy burden. Now, mm-hmm. The humanist psychologists weren't the first to say that, but uh, and Irving Allen wasn't the first to say that. But but understanding and and the psychology of that, I think, is a, is an important task of psychologists, not just understanding, you know, like giving people life satisfaction questionnaire and say how happy are you, you know? Okay. So when you um, I know uh, one thing you want to do. I mean, we will. I promise, eventually get to transcendence. I mean, the the, the phenomenon. <laughs> but but you. There, um, there's a sense in which a pyramid image seems appropriate for what you're doing. Just in the in the in the, in the loose sense that, as, as I take it, you're saying transcendence needs a solid foundation, right? Yes, that, that's I right. mean, uh, you know, transcendence uh, to a to an extent that surprised me. The, the transcendence as you see it, and as Maslow, I guess, conceived of it, involves peak experiences, right? And, and of course, anybody could take a drug and get a kind of peak experience. But, but what you're saying is that there needs to be, um, uh, to get what you might call authentic transcendence or something or valid transcendence, there needs to be an integration of your be, your being first. And, and, and I take it that, in, that includes the, the not so great things. That, that includes. Yes. Uh, Yes, Maslow said it. I'll just summar, summar, summarize it in one sentence, one question. Maslow said, "Would you take an elevator to the top of Mount Everest if there was one available?" Right. Okay. Exactly. So, so the, you are, you are building a kind of edifice, even if it's not like it's not. Yes. The floors aren't really sequential in a certain sense. You don't have to go through floor six to get to floor seven, and there are all these uh, curious aspects of this edifice. But there is a foundation <laughs> and an edifice that needs to be built. Before you can get yes. to the transcendence. It, it's like a sailboat. Right. Now, you yeah. have, that's another thing you have is this sailboat image. Uh, uh, you've got the boat and then you've got the sail. And that corresponds loosely to what in, in, in Maslow's scheme was like, uh, you know, the boat is the meeting. Di- well, maybe not exactly. But anyway, I think it corresponds, doesn't it, to this idea that uh, I mean, you, you're you're labeling the hull of the boat security. Right. And then the sail is growth. And Maslow might have, uh, well, he, he had roughly the same dichotomy in mind, but the boat image is, 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 uh, very intuitively appealing. You, to avoid sinking, you know, um, you need the things that bring you security. You need, you need to take care of the, what he called the deficiencies. Um, but to go anywhere, you need, uh, exactly. the growth. Exactly. You know, the, the metaphor seemed to work in a lot of different levels. Also, we're constantly swimming, uh, in this sea of, 
of of unknown and and I think right now that maybe the, the sailboat metaphor works more than I ever would have thought I mean I never I never really imagined that when this book would come out I would actually be focusing much much more in my publicity materials and things on helping us secure that boat then I could be talking about the transcendence mm. part and I've sort of shifted my way of uh, what I focused on in this book now in, in light of the times. You, ha- you have to adapt. Now, that's funny. I hadn't thought of that. But yeah, no, this is a time, I mean, that uh, when suddenly things people just took for granted. Exactly. Like uh, their parents aren't going to die tomorrow, um, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, and, and just it's easy to go out and buy food at a restaurant. That's no longer possible in New York. I live in the New York area. My my town hasn't shut its restaurants, but we're getting there. Um, this, this is exactly Maslow's point. Exactly. You know, each one of these needs is associated with a worldview. And when we have a severe deprivation of a particular need, it, it locks us into that worldview. So let's talk about connection. If we're profoundly lonely – Everyone looks to us as a potential friend, you know, that we want to, you know, we, we sort of making a demand on the world. We're saying, please love me. Please respect me. Please uh, feed me. You know, each of these deprivation needs when we're in that state of what he called the deficiency realm of human existence is us trying to is tr- us trying to control the world. When you're in the growth realm of human existence or the being realm of human existence, you're not so worried about making demands on the world. You're interested in admiring people for who they are, not the purpose they serve for you. And that's what Maslow called be love or being love. But we all are kind of forced into this deficiency realm of human existence. And to the best of my capacity, at least on Twitter, and I know you said you, you wanted to talk about that. I just feel like it's, it's part of my mission to just show people that the B realm still exists. It's still there, even though we're kind of walked into this D realm. Yeah, what I was going to say about your Twitter feed is it's just very upbeat and affirmative. You know, it's not not. <laughs> but like I hope mine. not. I hope not annoyingly so. <laughs> no, it just it's strikingly so because it seems so rare on Twitter. Of course, you know, people talk about Twitter as if it's like this place, but in truth, it's just this specific place you've constructed by choosing the people you follow. I'm sure there are other upbeat, uh, affirmative people out there. I just you're, you're the one I follow, maybe. <laughs> uh, but anyway, you you stand I, I, out from the other people I follow. Well, thank you. I I want to be like the thinking person's optimism, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Like I I will be one of the first ones to cringe if I read like a lot of unthinking optimism, you know, or just platitudes. Right. I I write there with people who who kind of make fun of some of that stuff, and and I you know, and and I could still make fun of myself too at the end of the day. Like if I have something that some maybe I'll maybe I'll read something I wrote two days later after I wrote, it and I cringe at even what I wrote. But <laughs> you know, so you know, I, I I get it sometimes. But it's it's you know, at least I think people get it's the intention, it's what I'm feeling in the moment, and I really want to show people that the B realm is still there and 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 even when you just tweet something you're you're bringing it into existence i mean this is what this is what Raul may talked about in in the courage to create he defined creativity as bringing just simply bringing into existence something that didn't exist before uh and and that takes courage you know in a lot of ways and i think more people should be empowered to have that that courage to do that in a positive direction mm-hmm. even if even if everyone else around them is telling them no it, it does this, take courage this, yeah yeah it takes courage Sorry. to be affirmative and positive uh, you know because i think 
Although it's true that, you know, uh, Twitter is no single place. I do think that, broadly speaking, on Twitter these days, just given its demographic, the kinds of vocations that are represented on it, the age groups that are represented on it, it is by and large a a pretty edgy, somewhat cynical (laughs) place. And that's okay with me. Uh, It's not, you know, hugely at odds with my own nature, but it is... Yeah, I think it. I think it takes. Yeah, it probably takes some courage to be you, to be to be Scott Barry Kaufman on uh, Twitter. Well, thanks. I, I wasn't necessarily saying like you know, look how courageous I am. You know, from doing it. No, I'm, that's I'm, my I, job. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to make clear I wasn't. That wasn't my point. Uh, but you know, look, there's a difference though. It, wouldn't you agree? There's a difference between critical and cynical. Yes, there certainly is, uh, and. Um, it's there's even a difference between well maybe uh being having a cynical view of human nature but viewing people with bemused detach detachment in other words i mean i think of michael lewis who's somebody i've had on the podcast i i've known him i knew him we were uh worked together years ago and he he has a cynical view but he, he always makes it seem just kind of amusing and uh, he makes the human spectacle seem amusing and really not that horrible, even though we are all self-centered scum, kind of. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't know if I would necessarily describe humans that way, but I think, you know, I do also have a sort of absurdist sense of humor. So I, I do – I try not to take yeah. myself that seriously. I try not to take humans that seriously. But even within that framework, we – we still don't have to be cynical. I think cynical is something that is is a real problem with the world today. Like if I had to put my finger on some of the biggest psychological problems going on, because there's obviously more economical and other kinds of things, but psychological cynicism is really something that that tears that brings us away from being connected with each other and brings us away from a lot of the things that would give us a sense of well being in our lives. Now, speaking of connection. If we get back to this uh, security and growth thing, with the security being the hull of the sailboat and the, and the sail being um, the growth, I, I don't want to give the impression that the security part is just like uh, you know finding enough food and stuff, because the three dimensions you get into under security, there is safety, right? But there's also connection and and self esteem. So you you are recognizing that fundamental human needs and go beyond the uh, material nutritional and include the social and, and and so on right you want to talk a little about that before Absolutely. we move on to the growth the sale part yeah we are a social species i mean one of my uh, idols who i just talked to yesterday for my podcast roy baumeister has spent a whole career showing just how much of a social species we are you know we're the uh, uh, the social animal and other social other social psychologists like uh Elliot Aronson have described it as such as well who has but, a great textbook called the social animal yeah that's exactly correct mm-hmm. so well, that does have to be part of our understanding of human nature and 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 trying to understand when we get in panic mode it's usually because of something of a social disconnection nature or physical survival nature 
it's one of those two is what you tend to see. Now, when I talk about self-esteem, I still, if you noticed um, in that chapter, I still link it very much to the social drive. And I think that modern psychological science in unearthing this self-esteem motive uh, for instance, like Leary's uh, model of self-esteem showing that it's so strongly tied to our need for belonging, that it's almost like a sociometer, mm-hmm. that it, it's, a, it's, like a me- it's like a meter, a meter that, that where, wherever our, social, our self-esteem is, is based on how we perceive we are in relationship to how others perceive are perceiving us. You know, and, you know, if we feel a sense of shame, we feel like people all of a sudden don't like us, our self-esteem takes a hit. If we feel like people really like us, our self-esteem tends to rise. What I argue is that for each of these forms of uh, each of these needs in the book, there's a deprivation flavor to it and there's a growth flavor to it. So deprivation form of self-esteem is not healthy. You know, the kind where you are constantly dependent on the validation of others, but there's a growth form of self-esteem where you just feel like you're worthy, that you feel a sense of, of pride. I talk about healthy pride in that book and the mm-hmm. difference between unhealthy pride and healthy pride. And I think we can start to see the different flavors of these things. So that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It does. Now, on the connection front, you, you, we already talked a little about Twitter, but you do talk about social media a little in the book. I mean, the, 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 uh, the landscape is very, the landscape of connectivity is very much changed in, in ways that, it, I mean, in some ways, it becomes more challenging, right? I, I mean, technically, it's easier. It, it's easier. I can connect to a billion people without leaving my, my room, but, uh, it's a complicated landscape out there, right? Well, it, sh- it sure is. And in, in what way are you thinking? It's well, complicated. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I know you. I I I think you, you said something in the book that made me think of the book "The Lonely Crowd" by David Reisman from the fifties, where he emphasized um, that uh, people. He, he saw a movement even then. Um, from a world where people had a relatively small social universe with relatively deep connection to a world where they knew more people. And this is even in the fifties, you know, like, like a suburb, a big suburban high school versus the, uh, you know, a small town, uh, school, I think is kind of what he was talking about. But, but people were moving to a world where they had more social connecting connections, but they were more superficial and, and that involved different values, like moving from uh, a time when character was valued to a time when personality was valued in his view. And, 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 and it occurred to me that you were saying some things that suggested that really that process continues to go on. More and more connections, more and more superficial. It's very – yes, for sure. It's very peculiar if you think about the way social media is set up. You know, I'm having a conversation with you right now. You know, let's say we were just hanging out on the beach in Santa Monica and no one else around, just me and you. And we're just having a a one-on-one connection with each other where we don't have to worry about or think about whether or not what I say to you in this moment and what you say in return is going to get likes by anyone else in this world. You know, we're just being one-on-one connected. It's a very peculiar situation where now people are having, I would call it pseudo connections with each other where in reality, what's happening is every thought, the everything they do to respond to someone else in this this one-on-one moment is actually being driven by the extent to which it's going to be liked and um yeah. and 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 get give them esteem you know for saying something yeah so more, really more has, of our socializing yeah. is performative in a in a sense 
Yeah, that's that's a great way of uh, of saying it for sure. And and you know, people have used all sorts of words for this. And uh, you know, the word virtual virtue signaling gets thrown yeah. around. I think too much. Uh, you know, but you, there is you do see a lot of it, but it's thrown around a lot. You know. Yeah, because in, um, in a way, we're all put in this position of a performative, whether we want to or not. And, yeah. and which is why I don't understand sometimes why, like people, you're not in prison. I want to tell the people sometimes, like you're not in prison. Like sometimes people will try to start an argument with me on Twitter or, or like or like like demand that I answer their question, and I'm like, no, I I don't have to do that. I I. You know, that'd be like me walking down the street, having a conversation with a friend, and then someone comes up and says, hey, I've been eavesdropping your conversation, and I demand that I'm part of this conversation. It's it's like, no, they, we would say that's rude <laughs> in in real life, right? Yeah, and I don't, I don't, you know, think it, it's necessarily rude in these cases, but I do think people have, I mean, sometimes people are rude. I mean, I, I actually sometimes, got a little, yeah. I actually got a little ratioed today on Twitter, but the, um, uh, but I do think we should all remember we have the option to just not reply. This really started with email. Email itself <laughs> made it so easy to reach out to people that I had to finally figure out that I don't have to reply to every email. You just can't. It's not practical to to think that there's an obligation to reply, right? Whereas back when the threshold was higher, like somebody had to sit down and write a letter. Like, you know, um, you know, I, John McPhee, the famous New Yorker writer, was a teacher of mine in college. He has replied, I don't want to encourage people to write him, but he has replied to every letter he's ever gotten from a reader. And you know he's gotten a lot because all they have to do is send it to him care of the New Yorker. And he has a, you know, he's had a very robust following over the years. You couldn't possibly, uh, you know, I mean, we, 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 anyway, I, I guess I've made the point. This is, I digress. Um, so let's, okay, so there's security. Uh, I think we should, we should, um, that's the hull of the sailboat. Um, although it includes some, you know, non-trivial, uh, kinds of things to take care of, like, uh, you know, self-esteem, connectivity, anything, or connect, social connection. Anything else you want to say about that before we move on to growth, to the sale? No, I get and, it. And ultimately, at the giddy. top of the sale, folks, there, we promise transcendence. Oh, that's the spoiler alert. <laughs> well, we want to, we want to keep them on board, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, um, no, we can go out with this metaphor. Yeah, but yeah, no, that's right. I would love to go into, I would love to get into growth because we, we, we mustn't forget that growth does exist too. We, we don't, some people I, I do fear spend their entire lives securing the boat. Their entire lives and then they, they, they're on their deathbed. Well, it's with a deep challenge. Regrets. It's a challenge. Yeah. Life's, life's tough. For sure. And some people are put in situations they never asked for environmentally to be bored into a, a very, you know, uh, poor, you know, neighborhood where there's a lot of violence. I mean, that, these things, I try to make it very clear, these things depress self-actualization. And I don't think things like that are fully addressed in the field of positive psychology. That's actually been a criticism. I've, that's been one criticism I've had. Well, there's been a criticism that it's kind of ideologically loaded, that, that it's kind of, um, you know, dealing with first world problems, so to speak. Yeah, and it's not viewing, like I said, the totality of a person, right? I mean, a, a part of you is, that is meaningful part of you is if you're put in this state of psychological entropy, as I call it in the book, mm-hmm. you know, and as psychologists are calling it, applying physics principles of entropy to the psychological, to the brain, and showing that, you know, the human brain is a prediction machine. 
and just like physical systems can uh can reach this state of of entropy so can the human mind of of great disorder that sure. it prevents anything else but you wanted to actually go higher you wanted to talk about the great I did. stuff so i mean i just want to pause and say the reason i brought up social media is to drive home that just the hull of the boat keeping the hull intact can be a real challenge because we're living in a time when the very landscape of socializing is changing and some people find it disorienting and and you know uh people in high school and college uh, get depressed if they don't get enough affirmation on Instagram or whatever. And, and so it's challenging. But yeah, let's move on to, you know, you can't take the hull of the boat for granted, but, um, but let's do move on to the sail, the growth, which itself has, um, three dimensions. And maybe here we can get into exactly what you're doing, what you're trying to bring to the kind of structure you're trying to bring to a Maslowian worldview, the way you flesh out the dimensions, uh, with sub-dimensions and then, you know, use kind of survey, psychological survey uh, data to 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 uh, kind of uh, give right. a certain rigor to these things. Anyway, so growth has the three main dimensions, right? Our exploration, love, and purpose. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So talk about those. That's a lot. And, and just to give people a sense, and then exploration has like – all of these subdomains, yeah. like it has openness, which is a, a well-known psychological trait, uh, much studied adventure, curiosity, and then openness, just to take one example, has these, its own sub, uh, domains of like yes. flow, imagination, and, and I just want to give people a sense that, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a very accessible book, but it also, uh, it, it, it has some, some heft. It's, it's a very nerdy self-help book. Yeah, that's a good but, way to put it. That's a good way to put it. But, you know, we're still at the end of the day marketing it as self-help. I mean, we have a whole appendix. We actually have two appendices, but one appendix specifically uh, with exercises so people can apply the stuff in their in their daily life. And I hope this book appeals to to – I'll put it this way again, like the thinking person's guide to growth and living mm-hmm. a meaningful life, you know? Like you want to intentionally understand the theory behind what you're doing. You don't want to just be told to do what you're doing, right? Yeah. I, I hope there's a lot of people that don't want to just be told, like, here the ex- – it would have been easy for me to just publish the exercises. That's what so many self-help books do, right? Mm-hmm. But there's, there is a theory and science behind a lot of this. So the, the exploration – just as I say the need for safety is um, – provides the foundation for the boat. The need for exploration really is the foundation for growth. You can, in a sense, view it as two different triangles, right? Two different hierarchies. You know, you have the growth hierarchy and the security hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And when you launch from that place of exploration, uh, you can build higher levels of integration and you can, you know, put a dash of um, being love there, which is a, a love for, which is kind of more universal kind of love. Love, it's love is an attitude, loving people you don't even like, people mm-hmm. that are in, not in your in-group. See, the thing I talk about in connection, this was another thing I wanted to do is I wanted to separate the need for connection from the need for love uh, or universal love because I didn't think the field really, the field of psychology really did a great job of distinguishing between those two things. But all this research is emerging on the need for connection, showing just how tied it is to oxytocin, which to oxytocin, it turns out, is is really the in-group love hmm. hormone <laughs> or, or neuromodulator. Um, and that's really 
that's interesting, you know, and, uh, and, and to think sometimes we need to untether ourselves from the oxytocin in order to have some more spiritual forms of love for people, uh, that, that are even great, great on our nerves. So, um, yeah, I'll stop so, there and, and let you talk. Okay. So, so, um, in terms of so so how should people what should people do with say a category like exploration i mean it, uh, the idea i take it is that these are things you can cultivate now i mean there are people who are just naturally explorers i mean you talk about this guy uh alex homold i don't know how you pronounce the last name Honold, yeah. you know there was this famous uh documentary that i saw uh pretty famous called free solo have you seen the documentary oh i saw everything that he, about him oh yeah. man so this yeah. is the guy who without any ropes or anything climbed el capitan which is basically just a sheer huge cliff it and you know you 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 treated him um i don't want to quite say as a role model but um you you saw a lot of laudatory things in him whereas i watched that thing and my basic reaction is that guy's crazy. I mean, <laughs> you know, and, and they did, they did the FM, uh, the, the fMRI where they, you know, his amygdala wasn't as responsive to a lot of like fear images as people. And there, there's clearly something, you know, if the average human is, is the norm, which by definition it is, there's something off about this guy, right? I mean, this is not normal. Well, how <laughs> do we know you're not off? <laughs> well, how do we know you're, you're not the one that's in off? In certain respects, I am, but, uh, I, I think not. Maybe he has the right idea. I'm not saying it's bad. I, well, no, I am saying it's bad. I mean, he I mean, this could is well like people... be dead within five years. But but that's his choice. Yeah. You know, I guess you could say, right? I mean, well, it, it is if, possible. If people he's haven't on... seen this documentary, Free Solo, they really should. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I I think there's something special about him. I don't know if it's off. So I mean, I think that like. You see this with people on the autism spectrum as well. People, well, he tend is to view that he is thought to be on the spectrum, isn't he? He he, he could quite possibly be. I, I he was. I don't think he was officially diagnosed, but there is a sense of there's a certain intensity to him, a certain narrow focus, and uh, yeah, just a really narrow focus and on 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 mastering this one particular thing, almost to the exclusion of everything else in his life, you know. But I think that what the lesson he can teach us, any of us, is that he didn't start off with no fear. It may appear at this moment in his life as though, wow, this is, this is a guy with missing the chip in his brain for fear. He said that when he started off, he, at the very, you know, the, the very foundational level of this, he was scared in the beginning, but he trained himself to manage that uncertainty and anxiety so much that he didn't fear the actual moment when it arrived. What he does, what he did, I mean, he prepares years in advance, uh, and he choreographs things to such a meticulous degree oh, yeah. that what he's what he's doing is reducing the uncertainty so much in his preparation that it's no big deal. People call him No Big Deal Hanold. You know, that's his nickname. Mm-hmm. Isn't yeah, that an important he, he lesson? Had climbed, he had climbed it with ropes, so he kind of scoped the whole thing out, time and time, and he knew exactly what path he, where he needed to veer left by twenty feet to, and and, uh, but it's an amazing, uh, it's an amazing, amazing thing. Anyway, I mean, I would love to have less fear, and and uh, so I'd love to use him as a role model in that way, and I would, I, I, I would, I would like to be more adventurous, not exactly in that way. 
<laughs> not in the I'm sense sure, that I literally I'm sure die there are other ways. if things don't work out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just yeah, that I right, get right. ratioed if things don't work out. I'd like to be a little more open to being ratioed, I guess. Um, yeah. So so exploration, as I said, that has a lot of dimensions. Now, when, um, you know, you're, you're uh, well, the, the subtitle is The New Science of Self-Actualization. So you're trying to bring a little bit in the way of scientific validation or structure to a Maslowian worldview. Is that right? Do you want to talk a little about the nuts and bolts of that? Like, uh, what, what is, what is the scientific part that you're bringing to this? Well, I've certainly been trying to use the scientific method to understand what are these characteristics that make it us most likely to feel like integrated whole people that brings out the best in us. And I've been studying things like the light triad, which that was the focus of our other chat, mm-hmm. you know, and we're trying to use the tools of science to see what a light triad would look like of personality. You know, I, I do what I can do, and that's science. And I try to apply that method using a very, a lot of different perspectives. So mm-hmm. I, I like to draw on evolutionary psychology, social psychology, clinical psychology, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Lots of different kinds of psychologies that we can draw on to come up with an integrated framework. But it felt like it was time for an update on Maslow because it's been 75 years, you know, and, uh, there's, uh, there just hasn't been too many attempts to resurrect those concepts. We, we, like I said, we have different concepts today. And the word self-actualization, I think, has a lot of woo-woo connotations. So I'm trying to legitimize, legitimize, uh, maybe some things that scientifically yeah. legitimize. Well, you make a lot of use of, uh, I mean, you, you, your background has put you very much in touch with, you know, like, uh, constructing and, and, and using scales, right? Like personal, like personality inventories and, you know, you, you kind of got your start in the field studying intelligence, right? And looking at like what tests right. do tell us about people. And you constructed your own, your own kind of self-actualization inventory, the scale that I took and that we talked about last time, right? Um, and that's right. Personality and- psychology forms a bedrock of this as and I think that's in the spirit of Maslow Maslow is very interested in personality and motivation and the connection between the two you know we're we're driven we're driven a lot by our our proclivities you know it, it maybe more than we want to admit you know especially with some sociology theories might want to completely ignore that fact but you know we really are we we they're called experience you know genes produce experience producing drives is the way mm-hmm. Bush, Bouchard and others have described it and i think that's that's a good way of thinking about the role of our biology and how it interacts with our culture okay so um so again in growth before we get to transcendence you've got exploration love purpose um and, and all these are things you can uh you can cultivate. I do think so. I think that we can, to each of us, to a, a degree probably larger than we realize, can construct ourselves. You know, we're we're constantly in that process of of creating ourselves and and reaching toward who we want to be by our moment to moment, day to day decisions. And 
you know, like Maslow really did believe that human development was a two step forward, one step back, two step forward, one step back dynamic, constant Mm -hmm. dynamic. He, again, he didn't view life as a video game, you know, where you have these lockstep progressions. We can address multiple needs simultaneously, but we're constantly falling backwards and then trying to grow. But as long as our entire lives, we strive for growth. That's the important thing. The important thing is not that you're perfect. The important, not that you reach enlightenment. You know, there's how many of these so-called enlightened gurus are really th- themselves. It's built on a faulty foundation. You know, and how many of them are not involved in sex scandals at this moment? This is what I'm saying. You know, they'll maybe abuse their positions of power, etc. And that's clearly being deprivation driven. Mm-hmm not growth driven. So I do think we can work on this and it's just a matter of setting the intention to do so. And you think you, you kind of need to work on it if you want to, if you want to get to the transcendence part. Yes. And I think that whether or not people realize that they would, they would love more of that in their lives. Might as well call them peak experiences. You know, what are the most wondrous moments that make life worth living? What are and those this, moments? And this is yeah. an underappreciated part of Maslow. I mean, uh, again, the, the the version of the pyramid that I just uh, held up from my old textbook, I just got up past up to the top of the growth part, and there was a flat thing, and it didn't say anything about self about transcendence up there. But this is something that Maslow more than is appreciated, paid attention to. Oh yeah, and and people don't really talk about that aspect of his theory because that was very late in his life. Just the past couple of years of his life, he was talking about the transcendent experiences and transcendent values. But he did talk about he about different kinds of self actualizers towards the end of his life, and he started to make the distinction between transcending self actualizers and non transcending self actualizers. He called transcending self actualizers. He called them the transcenders. But um, no, he called them the transcenders, and he argued that the transcenders in this world are those that are constantly motivated by transcendence. So each of these things can be viewed as motivations. Each of these needs are associated with their own worldview and motivation. Well, what is the transcendence? So self-actualization worldview and motivation is, oh, I have to reach my, maximize my full potential, my own individual potential. And so many people, that's their highest thing in life. But what would it mean if your motivation was at the transcendence level? And Maslow argued that at a high, at, the, at the highest level of consciousness, we're motivated by things that are beyond health. We actually can be beyond health. We can reach a level of integration where it suddenly makes sense to say things such as the more unhappy you are, the higher your mental health. Like, like, mm. like people, what, what, what does that mean? Well, th- there, there is a level at which a lot of the false dichotomies we have in our society break down. And, and, and I'll put it this way, and I'll ask this question because I really do want people to read the book and I don't want to give it all away. I want to get kind of tease a little bit what I, what I mean about transcendent, about transcenders, but there, there seems to be something different between the, and I, by the way, I, I don't, I want people to read the book not just because the money, you know, <laughs> I'm saying also like it's, it takes me a lot, it took me a lot to get to the point of explaining all this and it's hard mm-hmm. for me to just, uh, just, just say it right now without laying all the fountain, the groundwork, right. but, there is something different from having uh being unhappy and depressed because you're not loved there's uh, you're not fed 
you're not respected and the kind of deprivation uh, and you know being unhappy and depressed because there's not enough beauty in the world there's not enough justice in the world there's not enough meaningfulness in the world you see a greater vision for what humans could be that people around you aren't actualizing there's mm-hmm. a difference there and this is what Maslow was trying to get at he called it meta motivation um he you know we can be motivated by our deficiencies but when you're meta motivated there's a level of motivation where it makes sense uh that the more frustrated you are is actually an indication that you're you're having these transcendent values that you're trying to realize and that's a good thing and it's a good thing to be frustrated by a lack of injustice uh, a lack of justice i should say a lack of uh more be- there, you know not enough beauty around you not enough uh meaningfulness etc he had a whole list of what he called the b values the values of of being itself hmm. okay yeah i wish I, i'm trying i was just reflecting on to what extent my unhappiness is <laughs> that elevated kind, <laughs> and to what it extended, it, it's more like I'm not getting enough respect. Um, well, what about from truth? Well, okay, what about uh, from the one of his B values is truth seeking. Yeah. Now I view you as pretty high in that. I scored uh, high on that part of the of your self actualization uh-huh. inventory last time. Uh, of course, it's it's based on self evaluation, so. So there's a little, I guess, maybe possible circularity in my calling myself a truth seeker <laughs> because if I'm not being truthful, then well, anyway, never mind. Um, but let's say, but let's say, I want to really stick with this because I, I see this in you. I see this. I see you as a transcender, is what I'm saying, and I'm, I want you to see mm-hmm. it in yourself. So let's say that you you're watching the news and our president or someone else says something that's so blatantly untrue. Yeah, it's it's blatant. And and that gives you a great sense of anger and and maybe even a temporary depression. Now mm-hmm. that's not the sort of thing that you need medication for. It's not the sort of thing you go to the you say I'm feeling depressed and and you go and you say please give me serotonin reuptake. No, I mean this is stemming from a, a meta motivation to increase the B value of truth in the world. Yeah, is it? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I was just thinking like. You, you know, you emphasize purpose in the growth part. That's one of the three kind of dimensions. And, and, and that's another thing. I don't want to get too self-indulgent here, but the good news is I'm much less self-indulgent than I was last time, which was like 50% about me because I had just taken your self-transcendence test. But, um, you know, and I, and sense of purpose was another thing I scored high on balance, by the way. I did not score high on self-actualization particularly, but on purpose, I did have a strong sense of purpose. But it, 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 the thing about that is that that allows you uh, having a strong sense of purpose and 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 identifying with an idealistic purpose, like making the world better. Kind of kind of allows you to conflate the unhappiness of a, of the high minded kind with with the unhappiness of the less high minded kind. In other words, like I'm not getting any respect. So I can tell myself that I'm unhappy because I'm trying to make these arguments that will save the world and nobody's paying attention. But actually, that's just another way of saying I'm unhappy because I'm not getting as, as much respect as I'd like. Do you see what I mean? You see what I mean? <laughs> yes, but then you wouldn't be motivated by by the B value. You know, it, it, one of the one of the so definitions. The B value is the high minded one, right? Yes, correct. Uh-huh. But one of the the characteristic of a B value is that that there is no further end. It, it it is the end. It is the end value. It is the, these are the ultimate verities. But but what that means is you're motivated by it be, um, because 
you simply want to see more of that in the world, not for any other reason. So if you were doing it and there was a reason because you really wanted more self-esteem or accolades and, and, and what was really depressing you is that every time you say something along these lines on Twitter, you're not getting enough likes for it, then that would be an indication that you're still deprivation motivated. But I really do think there are transcenders and and people who who strive toward these things being an end in themselves and and quite frankly most of them are not on twitter <laughs> probably you know they're not you know they're living their lives you know trying to to do what they they do and and, and try to bring about in the world they're not they're not that concerned with um well they they're concerned with the impact they're making in the world but not necessarily the the uh, uh the esteem aspect of it yeah I mean, I've always admired, like, uh, once I, when I was a, a freshman, Ralph Nader came and gave a talk. And at the end of the talk, he, like, some students came up the stage and he was just handing these leaflets out to them. And he just struck me as a person. I mean, I'm sure, like everyone, he had his pettiness and his ego and everything, but he seemed to me like someone just so absorbed in his cause. Yeah, uh, I was, yeah. it, it really seemed kind of laudable. Um, and I've always admired people who can really, I mean, it takes a kind of selflessness to really be fully absorbed yeah. in your, and, and I don't think I have that. Um, I, I'd like to get there. May, you know, maybe, maybe talking to you is the first step toward getting there. The, um, uh, so I know you don't want to give away too much, but there is a fascinating, very long list of char- characteristics of transcenders. And we can't give away much because it would take too long to read them. It's surprisingly long. Now, this That's is true. like one of the gray boxes, right? Now, is this, is this all straight, straight Maslow? Or? Yes, yes. That's so Maslow. Maslow himself had this long list, you know, that, um, they perceive the sacred within the secular and so on. Now, uh, they are more responsive to beauty. There's a lot of things. And, and I, I gotta think there's very few people to whom all of these apply very robustly. Agreed. Agreed. But, and yes, maybe but, it's, but, maybe it's, yeah. You know, nice to have as much of it as you can, I guess. Well, why can't we view all these things as aspirational? You know, why can't we, why, why, like, what's wrong with having more North Star guides in our lives? Right. And I, I, I think there's such a lack of that. There's such a lack of leadership, in a sense, in, in our world today of, of, uh, of guides for that. Now, a lot of people go, go to religion for that, of yeah. course. But, as I've argued in the book, I'm much, I'm much more for secularized, secular, secularizing, I can't be trouble saying that word, um, or I should say democratizing spirituality, you know, having but, us. But also okay, kind of secular. I, I mean, I guess that's part of my question is, is this, is, you know, Maslow himself and what you do with Maslow part of a way of, um, Having a secular version of the spiritual, or you, you know what I mean? I think so. Oh yeah, I do know what you mean, and I think so because what he really wanted to show humans is that we don't have to appeal to the gods above to be great or to be good. That these potentialities exist in our DNA, and, and I think he would have been very happy if he lived today to see the strides being made in fields like evolutionary psychology and 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 and, uh, and other aspects of um the biology of of 
how we're wired for compassion. We're yes, of course, we're wired for lots of naughty things. Of course, of course, you can't deny that. But we are also wired for lots of things, like gratitude and 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 things that can bring us outside of ourselves. I think he he really before there was even a science of it, he was he was trying to make the argument: look, these are part of of human nature as well, and we don't need to appeal to the gods above in order to realize those potentialities. That's really, I think, what he has tried to spend his whole life realizing that vision. Okay. And and would his peak experiences, the transcendence part, that would include a lot of, um, I mean, you talk about William James a little in the book, and, and, and he had his kind of varieties of religious experience and kind of defining the mystical experience. I mean, all, all of these things could qualify uh I mean in a way maybe I'm asking could actual religious experiences or eastern mystical experiences oh, yes. qualify yes. as transcendence all these things that we put under different labels and different uh headings in terms of their belief I would argue are all operating on the same biological machinery there is a fundamental human experience that we can all rally around we don't have to just rally around our own in-group belief mm-hmm. and there is also a twist ending to this book i i don't know how, how far you got in the book but there's something beyond peak experiences you know and that's do you that's feel what, like giving it away or do you do you want to you want to make people pay retail for that <laughs> well i i i had thought earlier when i made kind of made that point about why well, i want people to read the book i actually immediately felt kind of guilty i want to be honest for saying that because i I don't, I actually don't want to be that guy. I, I don't want to be the guy who's like, well, buy my book. I, I, cause I, I don't like that. Well, but if you believe, you know, I mean, it's like you said, you put a lot of work in it. You think that there's virtue in people's reading it. Uh, I do. And, and I wanted uh, to help them. But anyway, you know, say I, as much or as little about, uh, yeah, as you want about that. It's more, my hesitation is actually just more that I wanted to do the topic justice in like a two, three, like I, Maybe I, there was also like an introverted part of me that like, and, and by the way, I, I know, I think I say the word like too often, so I'm, I'm trying to try to work on that, but <laughs> there's an introverted, introverted part of me that spent like five years writing this book and trying to craft every sentence. And th- there's a part of me that wants to just do that and then not ever have to talk about it because I put mm. all the, hard, hard thought and work. And then I don't want to start undoing my own self because I'm put on this, being forced to be on this. Does that make sense? Like, can you resonate with that at all? Like when you, when you work so yeah, hard? Yeah. Oh, very much. Plus, I mean, it's, it's, you know, when you write a book and then you promote it, I mean, some people enjoy promoting things. I don't particularly. And there is, you know, there's just the feeling that when you talk to the publicity people and they're trying to bring out certain things, there's right. there's this feeling that you're cheapening the the product. Well, even calling it a product cheapens it, I guess, but um, <laughs> further cheapening the product. Um, there's there's that. Uh, I mean, that said, it, it can be very fun to talk about uh, a, a, a book, um, and uh, so I don't know. Your mileage but may I'll, vary. I'll, I'll go there. I'll, I'll, I'll say this. I'll say the the twist, or at least I'll, I'll touch on it. Maslow very much believed that peak experiences was the height of transcendence, until he himself faced his mortality head on. And I, and I think I bring this up because I think it, relate, it relates a lot to the world that we're living in, and our own experience of facing 
perhaps our mortality to an extent we never have before, especially if we're older, we have preconditions, you know, for this virus, you know, things like, like, wow, you mean I could just tomorrow get this and then within the next two days I'm out? I mean, that's a, a scary thought. Yeah. But Maslow realized once he faced his own mortality that he had a heightened sense of transcendence like he had never imagined. He didn't even, he, you know, he had talked about theoretically, but right. here he was actually experiencing it. And it perplexed him because according so to his heart, higher, he had heart trouble, right? And, and, correct. and, and so he, he naturally had a sense of, and he, and he died pretty young, 62. That's right. And so this That's is right. the part of his life you're talking about when he's he's actually having pain on a regular basis. He's been diagnosed as having heart trouble. He even Correct. had a heart attack, I think, didn't he? Very end of his life, yeah. yeah. And he and so the past year and a half of his life, he kind of reconfigured his whole theory of transcendence from peak experiences to what he called plateau experiences. And that's the part that that people don't haven't read about or also his theory Z is part of that as well, but the plateau experience is a term he adopted from his his Indian colleague Azrani, Ua Azrani, who was a mystic and spiritual leader in India. But this idea of the plateau experience, he Maslow called it like you're 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 not he says it's like lounging in heaven, not getting so excited about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the plateau is the peak experience is all about the the moment uh, the export, the, the excitement, the euphoria of the moment, and then you face reality later that day. But mm-hmm. how can we cultivate more in our life this plateau experience where we kind of walk around in this, this state, mild state of wonder and, 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 and mindfulness? And look, I don't think that state is altogether that different from what you write about in your book on the benefits of, a mind, a silent meditation retreat, or like what you mm-hmm. experienced personally, mm-hmm. as you so beautifully describe in your book, your own personal experiences of like a bird chirping or something. And I, I, you have some of these stories. You're like, well, I've never really thought about at that level, and and that's what Mazel had more of once he had that mortality salience. And I wonder if any good can come out of this, um, this this virus that, that the experience we're all having. A, I wonder how it can unite us more as a species, but B, I also wonder how it can, can lock us more into the present moment and, 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 and experience this form of transcendence Mazel was talking about than we ever had before in our lives. If there's any silver lining at all to this. That's interesting. So, you know, while you were talking about uh, Maslow kind of, I guess, reaching this plateau as mortality descended on him, um, I was reminded of this phrase, the death of ambition. Robert Penn Warren, the poet, when he got old, he wrote about what it's like, like I think he was maybe in his 90s by then, to have more or less lost your ambition and the virtues of that. Like, mm-hmm. is that related? Because also, I mean, on a, like, you know, the state you can get in on a silent meditation retreat is, is this definitely a state where you're not driven by the normal ambitions. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, is that part of what happened to Maslow? Absolutely. He has a, a quote very, very uh, close to the end of his life, his last public seminar. He's, he really said that, you know, if we can only trans, you know, he, he said that the, the, the competition and my ambition suddenly became foolish to me. 
like all those things that matter to me. Yep. Just I saw in this clearer moment just how silly it all was. And I could see much more clearly what really mattered. And he does. He talks about the, the shift in priority. But there's a lot of research showing this shift in priority happens in lots of different ways. I tried to triangulate things. So I have a whole section on people who do LSD. They tend mm-hmm. to have this shift. Uh, people who uh, – I talk about mindfulness, uh, extended mindfulness individuals. But, but those who also just have faced their mortality in some way, maybe a cancer diagnosis or lots of other things, they all tend to describe these similar experiences. And I think – Using the tools of science to better capture those experiences, and and there are there are science. I mean, I'm I'm one of them, but like my colleague David Yaden is doing great research mm-hmm. along these lines as well, and there are uh, others, Jonathan Haidt, uh, Dr. Keltner, I, I uh, Barbara Fredrickson. I list a, 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 a number of these scientists who are in the front lines of these kinds of experiences and these the, what we call transcendent experiences. Yeah. Um what was I, uh, I started thinking about those individual people. Yeah, D- uh, David Yaden is, uh, has done a lot of good work here and, and, uh, and Dacker Keltner is out west where you are now in, in, um, in California. Um, but, uh, oh, I know what I was going to ask. You mentioned LSD. The, um, what do you what do you make of the you know earlier I alluded to drugs as a possible kind of shortcut to peak experiences that maybe maybe didn't might or might not give you a valid uh experience what do you think of the growing use of psychedelics in a kind of intentionally spiritual way at least that's the you know i mean people uh, they're 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 doing it in groups and there yeah, are leaders think- and teachers and shamans and so on yeah, I'm going to say something. I, I don't know if it's controversial, but I think it's incredibly underrated the potential use of those those things to be aids to living a more integrated life. But it doesn't. It shouldn't be a substitute. Mm-hmm. And I really like the kind of work, the thoughtful work, such people like Catherine McLean, who I uh, McLean, who I feature in the book. She has devoted her whole life now to helping people integrate these experiences into the rest of their lives. Not so you just have these peak experiences through mm-hmm. the use of it, but how can you use those insights you gleaned from using those in a way to live your life in more of this state of of wonder and awe in your daily life and, and gratitude and appreciation and meaning, all these things that tend to come along for the ride. But I think it's starting to be quite undeniable the the positive benefits of psilocybin, for for instance, or some of these other things that can really reduce depression. And, and in a lot of ways, what they're doing at, at the most existential level is they're reducing your fear of death. Hmm. And that kind of is how this whole book ends, you know, is I talk about the ultimate unknown, you know, that death is the ultimate unknown. We have lots of unknowns in our lives, but if we can, reduce our psychological entropy for the ultimate unknown. That's a really nerdy way of framing it, but I think that's the correct technical way of framing the issue. We can live a transcendent life like we've never imagined would be even possible. And that's what Mm -hmm. Maslow believed, and I believe the science is bearing that out. I think Maslow would be very excited to see the science on it. Hmm. Okay, well, that is a 
That is a good note to end on, I guess. Do you want to, um, anything else you want to say about the book or your other work? No, this was a really great opportunity for me to, to flesh out some ideas and to chat with you. And, and you really gave me a good chance to get, get a lot of the goodies out. I, uh, I do want to say something, kind of a meta thing. You know, I, I've never viewed myself as a kind of like, guru type figure or whatever i i hear myself talk sometimes in these kind of interviews and i'm you know like i'm a preaching or something and and i just want to say that you know i think that we're all in this together and, and the way i view transcendence is not like being above anyone else in humanity it's not like you're looking down at other humans you in an essence transcendence is the way i see it is feeling a great oneness with the rest of humanity mm-hmm. not being like standing above it so i just wanted to end on that note and just how i personally view transcendence i think anyone who comes up to you and they're like i have transcended as though it's a state they reached <laughs> instead of a ongoing process you probably want to view with suspicion <laughs> yeah okay that's uh good i was i was looking for more people to view with suspicion um, <laughs> you're, you're funny. You're funny. I don't have enough of that. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much, Scott. The book is called Transcend the New Science of Self Actualization. And people should also listen to your uh, podcast, the psychology podcast. Um, thank you. which, uh, I don't know, comes out on Thursdays or something. Yeah, it tends to come out on Thursdays. That's exactly right. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, uh, the psychology podcast has been doing that for six years and, and it's still it's still going strong. It's, it's such a great chance for me to talk to people. It's a bit surreal that now the tables are turned a little bit, and now I'm going to be appearing on pot, other people's podcasts. You know, I'm, I, it's like, oh wow, I'm, I'm going to talk about myself now. <laughs> it's like, you know, I'm so used to you know, tell me all about yourself, and then I just listen. And now I'm like, wow. Well, yeah. Well, talk. last time we had the conversation on my podcast, you naturally assumed your role as podcast host, and I wound <laughs> yeah. up being almost embarrassed by how much we talked. No, don't me. be embarrassed. I'm endlessly fascinated with my fellow humans. I I feel like it's, uh, it's such a fun thing for me to be able to 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 understand someone else. But thanks thanks for the opportunity for me to talk about my own sort of B values, so to speak. My pleasure. Everyone should go and get the book. Uh, I think you said just enough about the plateau to to you know. I mean, Good. not that you did it for marketing purposes, but I, I think your publicity people would be happy. You just gave them a taste yeah, of that yeah. plateau. Good, good. For the rest, I'll have to buy the book. Okay. Thanks a lot, Scott. Thank you.